As we've already established, 1979 was considered a chaotic year for television. So much so that over the next 15 years, television itself would go through a series of profound changes in quality. Largely gone were the shows that catered to the lowest common denominator, and in its place were shows and moments that people will be talking about for years to come. For the most part, all was peaceful in the world of television until roughly the spring of 1993, when the TV landscape would make one of a few monumental changes that would happen within the decade. It was at that time when two brand new broadcast television networks would announce their impending arrivals, both of which used their existing brand names to create early hype and convince independent TV stations to potentially elevate themselves. Not unlike another up-and-coming network did in the mid-1980s, but we'll save that story for February. For now, though, our next theme month will involve the first of these networks of the 90s, and how some of the shows they put on during its short lifespan proved to be more infamous than famous. First things first, the notion of a Paramount TV network was not a brand new idea as of 1993. Back in 1978, under the leadership of media titan Barry Diller, there were plans to start up a nightly network of Paramount-branded programming on the few syndicated TV stations that would sign up for the service, the aptly named Paramount Television Service. These plans included several dozen movies of the week, as well as a new entry into a franchise that needs no introduction. To boldly go where no man has gone before. By the 1970s, reruns of Star Trek was one of Paramount's biggest cash cows. So naturally, the notion of continuing the adventures of the Starship Enterprise for this new network was a given. The show, to be called Star Trek Phase 2, was to be the centerpiece of this new network. Or at least it would have been, had Gulf and Western, Paramount's then-parent company, didn't turn out to be gun-shy about the whole thing. And so, thanks to fears that a new TV network would wipe out Paramount financially, the plug was pulled on the Paramount television service six months before it was supposed to launch in... 1979. But the aborted launch didn't deter Paramount from making an even bigger footprint in the world of TV production. Through the 1980s and part of the 90s, the company's television division increased their efforts in first-run syndication up to and including more Star Trek-related programming, and also proved to be a boon for the independent TV stations that would air its programming. So, with that boost of confidence, the studio attempted once again to have its own TV network. Through a joint venture between Paramount's new corporate parent, Viacom Incorporated, and United Television via Chris Craft Industries, an offshoot of a company that made motorboats, a deal was closed in March of 1994 for a brand new broadcast television network to hit the airwaves. The name of the network would be an amalgam of initials from Paramount Pictures and United Television. Put them all together, and you've got UPN, the United Paramount Network. The network was to launch in the winter of 1995, 
Not unlike its aborted predecessor, the network was also to launch with a new entry into the Star Trek franchise, the long-running Voyager. But aside from the tried and true, as many new networks do when starting out, they tried to entice viewers into believing that what they had to offer them was something new, as their network imaging practically forced down our throats. Don't you have anything new? You want next? Here's next. The people who gave you all those great shows are starting their own TV network. You want action? You want adventure? Keep it right here. What do you need to know? Including the new Star Trek series, the network would launch itself with a total of six new shows, five of which would prove to be unwatchable. Though, to be honest, my curiosity is kind of piqued with the notion of Sir Mixalot playing a detective. Oh, you think I'm making that one up, don't you? You'll see what he sees. And what he sees is like nothing you've ever seen. This is Vegas. We swing hard down here. The Watcher. As is the case with any new TV network, there would naturally be a number of growing pains taking place. Its first full season in the fall of 1995 would fare slightly better, thanks in small part to the network acquiring the rights to sitcoms that other networks didn't want anymore. But at the same time, the network still had relatively modest hit shows for the position it was in, even if that position was perpetually in sixth place among the broadcast networks. In short, the early years of UPN and, let's be honest, most of its existence on the air, seemed to be a never-ending marathon of throwing stuff against the wall in the hopes that something would stick long enough so that the network would have a solid identity. With Star Trek Voyager being their first and only hit of 1995, the network decided to double down on action shows in an effort to cater to the young male demographic. But it wouldn't be until January of 1996, when a mid-season sitcom debuted, that would forever change their trajectory. Up-and-coming pop singer Brandy Norwood, or just Brandy for short, was already an established star on the charts. For the network to land her to star in her own sitcom was seen as nothing short of a major victory for the struggling network, not to mention a stroke of good luck and timing since this show was originally produced for CBS, which was having its own problems in the mid-90s, but I digress. Moesha, created by writing veterans Ralph Farquhar, Sarah V. Finney, and Vita Spears, was not only UPN's next show to be a hit out of the gate, but it would also prove to be a show that would cater to an untapped demographic, as it would become the first of a number of shows the network would have that would appeal to urban audiences. Of course, Moesha wasn't the only show on television itself to appeal to urban demographics. Fox in particular already had a head start with the likes of Martin Lawrence's sitcom and Living Single being on back-to-back. Put two and two together, and UPN would have its game plan in place for the 1996-97 season. Downplay the action shows, with the exception of the still popular Star Trek Voyager, and open up a few nights on the schedule devoted to urban-based sitcoms. 
which they did. I like big laughs and I cannot lie. Big is good. And for the most part, the plan to cater to urban America seemed to be working. Granted, UPN was still in sixth place among the broadcast networks, but ratings were gradually going up. However, this step in the right direction could only mean one thing for something that was still very much in its upstart phase. UPN started to get cocky. As proof of that, some of the shows the network would put on during the rest of the 1990s pulled off a dual feed of Missing the Mark Completely and Flying Too Close to the Sun at the same time, and thus the subject of our next Channel Surfing Theme Month beginning next week. We will be taking a look at three shows that aired on a network that came in with guns blazing, only for it to flame out. Shows that represented UPN's existence in a light that's harsher than halogen. And coincidentally enough, each of these shows perennially make it onto lists of the worst TV shows of all time. But, as we often do, we try to figure out if any of them deserve the reputation. So join us, starting on November 6th, as we surf to our next channel and take part in... UPN November. Word on the street is it's going to be big. Stay tuned. Network television has never looked quite like this. It's UPN November in Tele Hell.